Hello, and welcome to the Wiz Blyer with me, of course, Wiz Blyer. Uh, this podcast is about getting to know interesting people, entrepreneurs, and business owners. Listen, it's just real conversation. I think we have a lot of fun. On this episode, I catch up with an old friend, John Nelson. Uh, John is a marketing professional who's a fierce advocate for mental health. We discuss John's journey through his own mental health diagnosis. And of course, John is dedicated to destroying the stigma of this terrible disease. We go really deep on this episode. I just want you to know that. For some of you, it might be a little bit too much, but it's honest and it's transparent. We recorded the show virtually, and something was amiss with my audio track for some parts of the show, especially the beginning. I sound like, I don't know, maybe I've had one too many drinks. But I assure you, I'm not drunk or even sipping on a beer. Um, I actually thought about not releasing this episode, but I do think the content is far too important to scrap over a little technical difficulty. So with that being said, I hope you enjoy the show. All right, we're live here with my old friend, Jonathan Nelson. So John, um, it's been 30 years. It's been 30 years. And I think my last um, memory, maybe, was right before you're leaving. We were in your basement, um, RR and me. I'm not, I mean, I don't know if that was right before you're leaving, and I don't know if you remember this, but we were playing darts in your basement, and uh, RR, the fellow that he is, threw a dart right into your back. Do you remember that at all? I have a I have a very very vivid memory of that. Yes, you really. <laughs> I totally do. You still keep in touch with RR? Uh, yeah, yeah. From uh, we I text with him. He's down in Florida these days. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, crazy as ever. I mean, good guy. But well, yeah. I miss the Berg, man. It's uh, it's still a huge part of me for sure. Leaving at sixteen was tough, but it's uh, it's such an amazing childhood. I, I look back on that childhood and. We just had a great time. We had a lot of fun. And you were my first friend whose name was John. I mean, because we went to, we grew up together. Yeah. Um, kindergarten, maybe. Yeah. Um, and I thought everybody whose name was John, they spelled it J-O-N. And, <laughs> and then all of a sudden I see J-O-H-N, you know, down the line. I'm like, what? What's a silent H? Who does that? My buddy John Nelson doesn't do that. That's the right way. When people spell my name in an email, J-O-H, and I'm like, you don't even know me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so are you still in Fox Chapel? Yeah, yeah. We, we uh, left Pittsburgh because I think it's important that you do leave Pittsburgh if you grew up or you grew up anywhere. You got to get out. You got to see the world. Um, so I moved to San Diego around 19 years old or so, um, lived out there for 12 years. My wife's from Pittsburgh, but we didn't know each other when we were here. Uh, I met her uh, coming back, you know, come and visit friends, go to the bar, uh, met her. And then we did a long distance thing for a year or two while she finished up at Pitt. And she moved out and got married, that whole thing. So we lived to, in um, San Diego till about, 30. Then once we had my son, it was, all right, we got to get back home because I mean, you got family. Um, and the real, the real reason, no, 
the only reason, but one of the reasons is that our family celebrates Christmas. And uh, Christmas Eve in San Diego, when it's 75 degrees, it was the three of us sitting around a table for dinner. And there's just no, there was no magic that I remember yeah. as a kid. And I remember thinking, walking, uh, going for a hike with him and thinking, okay, we'll be back in Pittsburgh by the, the following year. And we were. We just picked up and left. I mean, there was no plan. There was no job. There was nothing. So it's been an interesting time since then. But what about you? So you leave a, you live Pittsburgh at 16. I know you're you know, somewhat of your story before yeah. that because we hung out a lot. Um, but I haven't talked to you or seen you in literally 30 years. So we moved from Pittsburgh. My father's job took us out to Indianapolis. And let me tell you, you know, moving sophomore year of high school, I started on my literally 16th birthday out there. It was rough. It was That's rough. Tough. You know, it was, uh, you know, went to a small school, about 80 kids. And, you know, I would say the best thing that it taught me for sure is that first six months was brutal. And, you know, you're missing home and let's go back and let's board, let's do school back in Pittsburgh, you know, just thinking of any option to, to not be in that newness stage. And I'll tell you, you know, the best thing that it did for me for sure was learn how to love change. You know, I got the first kindness, the first friend that, you know, reached out to me, you know, out in Indianapolis and, you know, we became buddies. I joined the hockey team. I started making friends and I just fell in love with the city. I fell in love with the people. It made me realize, you know, how important it was to do new things. And I think the biggest thing that it taught me too was I can tell you when I go into a room who's never been into a new situation in their life. You know, sure. everybody needs to feel a little vulnerable at times. And, and I go I go out of my way in, in any situation to find that new person to make them feel comfortable because you never forget it. You know, I never forget those first people that, that really did put me in that state of ease. And um, it's something I've taken with me my whole life, for sure. Uh, I, went from, I went from there to Bloomington, Indiana to become a Hoosier. For college, which yeah. was awesome. My my dad actually worked me perfectly. I was uh, he worked for Indiana University, and so when I was looking to go to schools, I just wanted to go somewhere big. I grew up going to all these small schools, and and I, I had it narrowed down to Michigan State, Indiana. And my father said, "You know, where do you want to go?" I said, "Michigan State, Dad." I said, "It's beautiful. You know, there's tons of girls. You know, just joking around." And, this you is weren't joking be, this, around. Let's yeah, be I was real. Like, this is, I was like, come on, Dad. You know, this is going to be amazing. And uh, and he said, well, what's the $25,000 difference between Indiana and Michigan State? Because I got to go to Indiana for free. And uh, and he said, how about this? How about this? If you go to Indiana, we'll get you a laptop. And I was like, that sounds awesome. So so for about a couple grand and eight megabytes of RAM, I got a Dell I was the happiest kid in the world, and my dad, did, my parents didn't have to uh, support college tuition. <laughs> Heck yeah, that's huge. Yeah, I mean, so they worked, they worked it out perfectly, you know. And I, I think about that now; it's hard. I mean, I got three kids. It's amazing oh, when you're in this position when you're thinking about, you know, saving up for college, and uh, you know the amount that that costs. It's just it's surreal. It's, it's amazing to go from where we were at sixteen and twenty to now being the parents. Do you have more than one? I got two. Yeah, awesome. 15 and 11. Oh, no. Yeah, 15 and 11. How I'm 13, 13, 11, and 9. And so we're, oh, we're in that spot, you know? And it's so it's hard not to 
it's hard not to think of it. But I, so after Indianapolis, I did um, New York City for about six years, San Francisco, then after that for about six years. And now I've been outside of Philly ever since. And, you know, each place, um, each place has been special. My son asked me yesterday, what was the, the best place you lived in? And I, I, it's hard for me to answer because I wouldn't change it at all. I, I think being late late twenties and early thirties, newly married in San Francisco, is something that you know is about as as amazing as it gets. Um, you know, we had the kids and started moving back east, very similar to you. You know, try to get a little bit closer to family. But um, I, I, I feel lucky. Indianapolis still. My wife's from Queens, born and raised. She's uh, she's as Italian as they get. Barbara Ceccarini. She's got a, her, her dad's NYPD, her brother's FBNY. You okay, know, I showed perfect. Up, yeah. I showed up to their house the first time, this, you know, little mutt from Pittsburgh and Indianapolis, and they had Antipost out. And I said, what's Antipost? And they all looked at me like I was a crazy person. I said, <laughs> manicotti instead of manicotti. Uh, you know, I, I, I've learned how to become a, a, an Italian. and I, I, That would definitely be my choice if I had to pick a nationality. <laughs> oh, yeah, the best food around. The best oh, man, food I- for sure. Yeah, it's just like I, I had um, I mean, I love Italian and I had a huge lasagna last night uh, from a little local Italian joint. And it's so good. But man, today, I I don't know how people do it every day. Uh, you beat up. All that pasta. Yeah. Holy jeez. Um, well, I did this. We had a sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was going to say one of one of the greatest things about being born and raised in this amazing city of Pittsburgh is everywhere that I have lived, there have been major Pittsburgh connections. The, the feeling of home, the, the Pittsburgh's cool. Being from Pittsburgh's cool. I've lived in places where it's not the coolest part of town. Right. So you, you, you feel like you're fighting to stick up for it. Right. You don't have to stick up for being from the bird. You know, it's just like, there's an, there's an immediate hug that people want to give you the, uh, I, I studied in Australia. I had a late Australian college, and there were Pittsburgh Steelers fans there. You know, were they you really? just wear, you'd wear your Steelers stuff, and people would come up and give you a hug, man. It was just the best. Each place I've lived has had um, Steelers bars. You'd go on Sunday and watch the games, and you'd be all together in Indianapolis and San Francisco. You know, it's just then there was just an immediate bond and camaraderie, and you, you felt like you were home. And oh, for it's sure. something that's always been special to me. New York City has tons of, of Steelers bars. It's amazing. It's, uh, I mean, San Diego, I think when I was there, there was eight Steeler bars. And how cool is that? It's, it's awesome. <laughs> and you can pick the people. I don't think I have a Steelers, I mean a Steelers, a Pittsburgh accent. Um, the the quote unquote Yinzer accent. But people, yeah. you talk to people and they go, you, are you from Pittsburgh? Yeah, they're like, how do you? Well, I can tell by your the way you're you're speaking. Like, I don't have the Pittsburgh. I worked very hard not to have that accent. <laughs> no offense to anybody that does, but for me, I I, I didn't want that. Um, and I think as a kid, you know, when you watch TV, nobody has that accent. Nobody no. speaks like that. And in business, if you speak to i'm going to like 99% even in pittsburgh of business owners nobody speaks with that um dialect i suppose um right so i th- i don't want to have that but i would tell you being you know living the places that i've lived the best is just the uniqueness for each so in 
you know, my, my in-laws being born and raised in Queens, it's the funniest part that they do is they add R's to everything. So instead of Napa and Sonoma, as an example, they would say Napa and Sonoma. And so you just get used to it. Like, so I, I like they're, they're, some of their friends are Linda and Randy. So it's Linder, Linder and Randy. And, you know, the weirdest part about being where I am now in Philly is they leave off parts of sentences and it's, and it's, and it's so common and normal. And I find myself doing, I see my kids doing it, but instead of saying, we're going to go down to the shore this weekend, they say, we're going to go down shore this weekend. They forget, they don't do the to the. And it's the weirdest thing because they all think it's completely normal, but it's, it's, and they do it in every context. I'm like, we're going to go down shore. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, we're going to go out, eat. We're, it, yeah. It's, it's just, so it's just, yeah. it's surreal. Every time I hear it, I just, I'm like, this is so weird. And they, it's so completely normal out here. It's uh, I'm sure every grammar teacher is rolling around a little bit, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I bet. Oh, the grammar, grammar Nazis. Um, yeah, exactly. Want to shoot themselves? Um, so, what have you been up to? I mean, sixteen, you go to college. Uh, I don't see you forever. I always think about you, and I always hope you were doing well. Um, and I lost contact with so many people as you do through life. Yeah. Uh, and you were you were making a great point earlier about accepting and embracing that change in that lesson that you learned from. Um, moving out of Pittsburgh, moving out of your comfort zone, it, a lot of people, you, and you'll notice that, as you said, um, you go into a meeting and somebody that has grown up, lived in one place for their whole life, um, all of a sudden doesn't really realize what it is to be uncomfortable and embrace that change um, and go out and try to be your own advocate, try to be... Uh, a person can, who, who who learns how to reach out and communicate with other people to make new friends, acquaintances, business partners, so forth and so on. Um, so you moved to Annapolis, Indianapolis, excuse me, and then you go to school, and then you moved to New York. I New assume for, for job right out of yeah. College. So I started I started uh, in New York City right out of college. I did a business major and. I got an opportunity to go to an advertising agency in New York City. So I was December. I graduated in January, literally the day after the Super Bowl. I uh, went in for my first day of work, and I still remember it like it was yesterday. I, you know, I, I show up at I think seven forty-five. I'm sitting outside of the, you know, I'm in New York City. This young punk coming from the Midwest, not knowing anything, and seven forty-five in the morning. I'm sitting out there with my coat and tie out front of the uh, the doors to the agency. And not a single person showed up till 9 a.m. And I was like, oh, I guess this is this is my new world. I got to figure this out. You know, I was, I was learning everything as I went along. But it, uh, I have to tell you, the best part about working in advertising, which I did for the first 12 years of my career, six in New York, six in San Francisco, is advertising is gives you a Ph.D. in real life business. It is extremely uh, hard work. It is, you know, all about servicing. It's all about deadlines. It's all about working within a team and the camaraderie that's there. And I, I give, I give every, any success that I've ever had in my business life purely to the upbringing that I have in advertising. And I, I think about it a lot with my kids because it is blood, sweat and tears is, you know, what would I tell my kids if they asked me if they want to go into it? And I'd say, 
go into it hard for five years, you know, go into it hard, learn the world, learn business, uh, learn how to be a good business person, a good person in general. And, you know, and, and see if you can get on that client side, because there is something amazing about being on the service side and being on the client side. And I've seen people take that career multiple plays, multiple ways, but it's, uh, I have to say, it's definitely shaped who I am from a business standpoint. I went after advertising. I did a business development role uh, on the media side, on kind of the publishing side of the business. I went back into advertising. I had the opportunity to run a shop in my own in my town. So it was it was the it was the coolness of being in advertising, but being you know similar to you. Like imagine a shop in Fox Chapel, right? Like it was it was just surreal. I was in a suburban suburban outfit, but having that, that same New York, uh, same city experience. And now I'm back on that publishing side. So it's, it's, uh, more business development. It's, uh, getting to leverage all of the relationships that I've had for 20 years in the business world and, you know, really getting to connect with, with phenomenal people. And I'd say that's the biggest thing that I've learned throughout, you know, my career is, you know, I, I can hand pick out the quality people, you know, just surrounding myself with good people, Surrounding myself with great workers—that's uh, that's always my my go-to. That's a talent. I, a lot of people just look for the next client, the next sale, the next, and and you forget about those relationships. Relationships, um, and that's the biggest thing. At least I found in business because I spent the first ten years just chasing sales, um, and then I shouldn't say ten years, um, but whatever, first yeah. several years. Um, especially when you're struggling and you, and you have no money. Like I, I mean, we were, we started, as I said before, there was no job. So I started a company and I have no money. Um, so it's going, I don't care what it was. If it paid me pennies, I'll take it because I need to feed a family. Um, so I understand that, uh, dichotomy, I suppose, um, of going for the sale, but once you can get past or come to that real realization that chasing a sale really isn't helpful. It's not really going to helpful or be helpful to you long-term. It's those relationships, those business contacts, it's that trust, that transparency, um, and giving advice. Even if you know you're not going to get that, that sale, why not still help somebody? It's it's the best thing you can do. And what I found in my life, the more you give, I mean, you hear this all the time, the more you give, the more you receive. Um, and so I think that's extremely important. Um, can I back up for a second? Yeah. We're talking about in advertising, the service side versus the client side. Am, am I right to assume the service side? Well, first, let me define or let you define. When you say advertising, I mean, that's a large huge industry um what kind of advertising you're talking print media um so when i first started in advertising it was primarily print this is in 2000 so we would have you know we we work most like mostly in the healthcare space so you know pfizer would be a big client of mine so we would represent different brands or different sections of that pfizer portfolio and we would develop every single aspect of advertising for them. So conventions, um, print material that would go in, uh, literally uh, commercials, advertisements in general. And and the, the world has changed into more of a digital space and seeing that transformation throughout, throughout you know, my career has been 
has been fascinating to see where yeah. it's gone. But it's uh, it's a totally different world now. I mean, back in the day, you would have interactive parts of your agency, um, digital parts of your agency. Now it's that's an agency, you know. That, now it's that's basically whole what age. it is yep. and how it is. But you know, but the reality of it is, you know, you get a new ad campaign that you're coming out with for anybody that you're working with starts off with a creative brief, starts off with the team. You know, the neat part about an agency is you have about 10 different departments. You have your creative folks, you have your art directors, you have your copywriters, you have production folks, you have editors, you have you have everything. And each each group comes together as a team. And, you know, to see the copywriters and art directors come together and develop these amazing creative campaigns and present them back. I was on the account side, so more of the business side, dealing with the clients and dealing with the internal teams. But just seeing the creativity that would come out with these ideas and how you could expand these ideas and, you know, distribute them across every single channel that we have and promote. It just was fascinating to see the creativity that could come out, but then also all of the steps that it took to deliver those messages to your, you know, key targets that were out there, but the bonds that you create with these people, because you're together all the time, man. I mean, we're, the amount of weekends you're that we work, the, the, uh, you know, especially in New York, you know, you get in there, like I said, at that 9am, you'd be lucky, you know, when you're in the busy time, you'd be home 11, 12 at night, and you would just oh, wake man. up the next morning and do it again. It was, yep. it was, it was just part of it. You know, a lot, a lot of it too is being young and, and redoing it. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. Maybe. No. Okay. That's good. Cause I did that for a long time. I did those, uh, 80 hour weeks and, yeah. It's easy when you're young and I mean, that's what you should do. And I tell young people, I tell my son, like say, if you're going to, if you want to start a business, uh, do it in your twenties and give up your twenties where everybody yeah. else is going out and doing their BS and they're, they're partying, which I did my fair share of, um, yes. you know, focus on that, give up your twenties. And then by the, hopefully by the time you're thirties, you've got something built. And then you can just focus on that. You can, you know, then start implementing, actually growing the business and running the business instead of, because when you're, you've dealt with it yourself, kind of, you didn't start your own business, but you get thrown into this. It's very similar where yeah. you have to prove yourself and you have to be everything. You know, I'm, I don't know about you. I don't know if they said, okay, John, all you're going to do is this one thing and just press buttons or whatever, but most of life is okay, John, here you go. Um, figure it out. <laughs> you go, oh, okay, yeah. help some a little guidance here. And you probably have your hands in a little bit of everything, learning, learning everything at once. And that's a perfect time in your twenties to do so. Um, so what do you think from an advertising standpoint? Uh, cause this is very fascinating to me. Advertising seemed to actually be easier previously. Um, cause you only had, I mean, you had your print, you had, if you did billboards, you had commercials, you know, you had your media through TV, but you didn't really have to deal with internet too much. Now the internet, which is a great tool uh, in some ways and very evil in other ways, seems for businesses, and I mean, for businesses that have a ton of money, they can just throw out, you know, Google AdWords and, and, and have, have the budgets to buy all these uh, really interesting things. But for a smaller company, it, it's almost a disadvantage, I think, um, because those other mediums, like if you, you used to be able to put an ad in a local, you know, your local paper and maybe get some traction from that, but nobody's reading the local paper. So you're, you're in the exact same funnel as the big guys are. And it's for very sure. difficult for these small companies, 
something that we're dealing with is, as well is, okay, what do you do if you don't have a huge budget and how do you compete and how do you become, um, you get your voice out there um, in, in today's world? I think, it's, I think it's almost rigged, the way I see it, it's rigged for the big guys, as it always kind of has been. Um, but what do you think is easier? I mean, do you think the old, old way was easier? Do you see a lot of really cool rev, uh, avenues to yeah. for a company to go down? I, I would say the biggest, biggest thing that I have seen change in the advertising world was it's, it's like a law firm. You're billing hours. It's an hourly. You're constantly looking at the u- utilization of every employee. How many hours have you billed? You know, you have 1,800 hours for the year that you're going after. Certain clients would be 1,600. Some would be 1,800. So you're constantly looking at that. You take hours times billable rate. In 2000, my billable rate was higher than it was when I left the ad agency space in 2018. So the, the difference, and this is from the development side. So this is creating all the content, creating the ads. This isn't the distribution side yet. The distribution is kind of that next angle of how do you take that great stuff you've created and get it out in front of your key targets and your audience. But, but the amount of competition, the amount of agencies that have uh, started, you know, we used to pitch against two or three shops for business. You know, one of the last pitches I was in was against 10, and it was for half of the size volume of the account from a dollar standpoint. Wow. And so, you know, general competition that's out there is just, it's its overwhelming from where it was when I first started. You know, and that's a grind. I mean, it makes it even harder because when you're doing these new business pitches, you're not doing it, you're not making any money. You know, now you're up against eight people instead of three, and it's uh, it's a different planet. So it's a grind, you know, it's a grind. And I, I would say, the amount of options that are out there, you know, you used to, you used to have that print journal, send it out there and it'd be readership, you know, then, then it was cost per, you know, the CPM is what they call it. It's impression based advertising. Then it became to engagement based advertising. How many of your key targets are engaging with your advertisement? You know, and so it's just continuing to develop and, you know, the, the, the amount of, the amount of spots that you can go out and promote, it honestly gets overwhelming in a bit, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, it's, you're just constantly looking for the new thing, uh, working with great people. You partner with an amazing media shop that will help get that message that you've developed out in front of the right folks. Um, in, in all of them now are going for obviously the digital space and, and promoting that way. So it's, it's been, an, it's been amazing for me to see the development of it over the last 20 years. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. Um, so are you still in that space? I mean, you said that your first 12 years was yeah. really advertising. Is that, that's still the space that you're really in. Um, yeah. You're more of a healthcare focused, if, if, if I have that right. Okay. Um, so so I've, gone over to, I've gone over to the business development side on, you know, I'm essentially part of a med- medical publisher. So I'm, I'm taking our, our key messages or the key messages that are trying to be promoted and and connecting them with uh, an, an audience of physicians that we have access to. And so the, the neat part about it is I'm leveraging, like I said, all of my contacts from the past and working with great people, but it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful position working with a great team. You know, the biggest challenge that I have is I'm, I'm in, you know, I call it business development, it's sales, right? But it's business development from my standpoint. And you know, why I love it is, like I said, connecting with the old people, um, you know, working hard. But, you know, my success in sales is to do everything the opposite of what you would think of a 
standard salesperson. I, I hear people, you know, I was, we're out with a client for lunch last week and they said, oh, you like your new sales job? And I kind of cringe, you know, I'm like, I, I don't even think of it like that. And I just said, you know, the last thing I will ever do is make you feel uncomfortable right. ever. You know, I, I will never push anything down you. It's, it's, you're buying from people, man. It's all, it's all relationships. It's here's, here's what we have the op to offer. It's a great offering. Uh, if you'd like to buy it, I'm your dude. I'm, I'm your guy who's going to help pull through. Uh, and that's it, you know, and, and to me, to me, that's, it's the feelings, man. Feelings that people have about, about you is what it's all about. You only, you only have yourself in this field, especially in business development. It's all about your reputation yep. and it's all about being a good person and, you know, and leveraging, you know, great contacts. And that, that's what I love about it is, uh, is being able to make those connections, being able to, to, to partner with really good people and to be able to provide a great product, a great service. Yeah. It's important. Uh, in what you said, we touched on, and I, I, I talk about this almost every, episode maybe, um, is that, uh, the sales, you know, you say, Oh, you're a salesperson. I mean, listen, don't let anybody fool you. Sales is the basis of any business, right? Absolutely. 100%. Yes. 100%. You got to sell what, your service, your product, whatever it is you're doing, you got to get out there and sell it. But how you sell it is what will determine your future. And I spent, you know, my twenties and even into my thirties starting this, it was, selling, selling, I mean, really just selling for selling sake, right? Just trying to get enough money to be able to pay the bills, keep the lights on. And, and that's a terrible position to be in. And anybody who starts a company, you're probably going to be in that, in that situation. Um, unless you have a lot of funding, of course, or family that gets yeah. to give you a whole bunch of capital. Um, and it's a real hard position because it can easily skew your um, own self-worth, right? Your, your, your own morals, your own objectives, because survival is going to trump everything, right? It just is. Um, but if you can get past that or do some real self-searching, um, and say, okay, I don't, the sale isn't the goal, right? The relationship is the goal. The transparency is the goal. And if somebody likes you and they trust you, why wouldn't they do business with you? They really should, unless it comes down to a bottom line, which in today's market, I mean, if you're transparent enough, everybody's probably going to be similarly priced, you know, if you're offering the same service product. Um, so it does come to a bottom line sometimes. But if you're close enough, if you're in that realm and you're somebody that be trusted, you're obviously looking out for their best interest. You don't have that that secondary or that that primary um, goal of just making money uh, that comes through. People can read that. And uh, just for anybody out there that might be listening, that's thinking about starting a business or new in a business or in that sales role uh, and your managers and your, you know, the old school people are like, just go out and sell. Where's, where's the new sale? Where's, where's my money? Give me, uh, forget all that. Right. It'll come. Don't pressure it. And just go out and make those contacts in, 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 just have a group that trusts you and that will spread. Um, as I think it's a huge lesson for, for, for anybody, whether you're a seasoned salesperson or, or just coming into, uh, into your own little world, um, take that to heart. And I think a lot of people are starting to yeah. talk about that. And I think it's, it, there's probably not much more important from a business standpoint 
um, than that kind of message. You said something that really resonated with me, which was survival. You know, you did it to yeah, you had that survival aspect. And, you know, one of the challenges that I have had, you know, specifically over the last 10 years is I've been diagnosed with uh, major depressive disorder. I've been dealing and fighting with depression for a big part of my adult life. And it's gotten worse over the last 10 years. And I've had to deal with this debilitating disease. At the same time, I've had to provide for my family. And so I'm dealing with something where, you know, it wants to suck all the motivation out of you. It wants you to think poorly of yourself all the time. It makes you want to die. And, you know, while I'm doing that, I need to go to work. I need to survive. I need my, I need to provide for my family. Yep. And it's extremely challenging. Uh, but when you said, when you said you got to get it done, you got to provide. I mean, that's the reality of it is I don't want to be there some days. I don't want to do anything but lay in bed. And I have to use every single part of my energy to get through that work day um, in order to provide for my family. And it's uh and it really resonated with me when you said that. Well, thank you for sharing. I mean, that's a huge thing to um, discuss. Um, you mind me asking when wh when that diagnosis? You said about ten years ago. You know, ten years ago, I started. I was in. I was doing. Fun, I was having funks, right? Like everybody's got the blues. Everybody's got funks, and I started seeing a therapist, and she was the first person to tell me that I have major depressive disorder. And my first reaction was like, what are you talking about? Like I, you know, I've had, you know, and then she read it to me and I was like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, you're right. Um, what, what started is that? seeing, what, what did she say? What is, I mean, what's, she read for me from the, the DSM four, four, which was essentially the kind of Bible for, you know, me mental health. And uh, I don't remember exactly what the definition was, but as she said it, it was basically over three or four recurrences. You know, you've had bouts throughout. And, you know, as we were talking, I was like, oh, my God, like this is more serious than I thought. You know, this is this is a this is a disease. This is something that I need help controlling. I need to get in front of a psychiatrist that start helping me with med medicines and medications. I need to change some patterns up in my life. And it was the first time that I really started taking it seriously um, in regards to this is a disease, this is a condition, you know, and it's gotten to the point where in the last five years specifically, you know, I've, I've, I've gone downhill, you know, I've had, I've been in two residential treatment programs. Um, I've had to, to leave work a couple of times. I've been in what they call partial hospitalization plans. So these are uh, opportunities for you to, really from kind of a nine to three basis uh, with, with the right people and right support systems, you know, help you get through it and help you manage your disease. Um, I can't tell you the amount of medications that I have been on and I'm, I'm what you call uh, resistant to everything. And, oh. you know, I, I did, I, I, I have absolutely no shame in any of this. I've done everything that you can imagine to get better and nothing's worked. Um, in the earlier part of this year, I had to do ECT, uh, the electroconvulsive therapy. And I can't begin to tell you how um, hard it was to go in to do that. And, you know, to put that, you know, obviously it's a, it's a big, it's a big challenge for your family to have to, to deal with, you know, 
13 different treatments on that and, and putting for time sure. aside to make it happen. And it did nothing for me, you know? Wow. And so you, you put, you put that much ability and effort into finding a cure and finding some relief and you can't get it. It's frustrating. And I will tell you that the point of dealing with all of this and the point of having this disease and being part of a society which stigmatizes it pisses me off. You know, yeah. the, the, I've, I've not asked for this. I've not asked to, um, I've not asked to wake up every day and have, you know, the feeling of death just straight in front of your face. And the fact that society judges me for having a disease um, blows my mind. You know, and I'll, I'll tell you, the simple way to think about the stigma is very, very simple. If I told you that I just found out that Bob has pediatric, I'm not, I mean, that Bob has um, pancreatic cancer, what's your immediate reaction? Your immediate reaction is, I feel awful. I right. feel so sad for Bob. I feel so sad for Bob's family. You know, when you look at it, when it comes to mental illness, you know, John has, Bob has depression. Bob has major depressive disorder. It's made a big impact in his life. You absolutely do not get the same reaction. You get the, what is he depressed for? Snap out of it. Um, there's a complete stigma and judgment that goes against you and goes against your family. And then God forbid, Bob takes his own life. The reaction is not anything but Bob was selfish. How could he do that to his family? The reality of that is when you think of Bob and the, the, um, the cancer diagnosis, if he died from cancer, it's the worst thing in the world, right? Like you, you have people showing up and dropping off casseroles at houses. You have completely taken care of the family. You have complete love and support from your community. If somebody has a major mental illness and takes their life, that's what the disease is trying to have you do. Yeah. Every single day you're waking up with that feeling and, and it's done its job. And, you know, it's, it's just such a simplistic thing to me of show empathy, you know, show people that, uh, you know, that are struggling, that you care, that you, that you're loved and that you didn't ask for this. And, you know, I'll, I'll do everything in my power for the rest of my life to talk about this because it needs to be normalized and people need to understand that it's a disease that you did not ask for that is massively impacting your life. It completely um, takes your motivation level down. It makes you want to stay in bed. Uh, it makes you want to not do anything. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that's the simplistic version of, of what it is. And I'll, from my standpoint, something that I um, am ex extremely comfortable and happy with is, you know, I've continued to fight. I have three children. I'm not leaving this planet because of them. And I need to do everything I can to get better. And so one of the things that has recently been amazing news for me is since I have failed all of the therapy that I've tried, I have been trying to get into a clinical trial out of Mount Sinai in New York City, which is based on deep brain stimulation. So this is a, this is a huge trial that's supported by the NIH. You have to get into it purely by failing everything. And that's why I did ECT is I needed to fail that in order to get it. So on August 22nd of this year, I'm getting brain surgery. I'm getting, um, it's called deep brain stimulation. It's basically a pacemaker in your brain. 
electrodes placed in kind of the depression portion of your brain and they try to spark it, they try to get it active and they try to, to help cure you. And, you know, it's ironic that the son of a neurosurgeon is getting brain surgery, but, you know, I have, uh, I have a great team of people that care for me and love me and get to take a little bit of time off of work and try to heal and get better. And hopefully this is something that can help, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a big part of my life and to not talk about it is me letting the, me letting society win. And I no, you got to talk about it. Yeah. And you got to yeah. get it out there and get it out of your, I mean, in talking about it, it's probably good therapy in itself. Um, you know, mental health is interesting because it has come to light recently. I mean, you talk about, um, you know, famous people like Robin Williams or, uh, Chris Cornell from Soundgarden, uh, Chester Benning, Benning field, Lincoln park. Yeah. Lincoln park. Um, tragic, um, outcomes of presumably mental health. And, you know, I think the problem and and you're right in saying that, you know, the correlation you made to mental health and say something like cancer or, or, or something that's diagnosed to say, here, you have this tumor, you have this cancer. Um, I think, I think, and I'm just, I'm not obviously a psychiatrist of any, any kind, but what I look out in this society, um, cause I have friends and family and, and I don't personally have depression, but I can speak on something I've never spoke, spoke on before, um, about a depressive type of episodes that I went through when I felt like I was fam- failing my family, when I wasn't able to really put uh, the meals on the table. My wife had to go back to work to help support the family. And as a father, what that made me feel like, and I did feel suicidal. I mean, I thought about it daily. Uh, and like you said, I mean, I've got kids, I'm not leaving this world. Now I, you know, again, I don't have the disease like you have. Um, there's just bad feelings and it's easy, you know, some of the times those feelings are just, Hey, it's, it would be easier just to be, not be here. Right. Uh, For sure. if I have life insurance, they could get paid out. The family would be okay. Um, that's the easy road. Um, but I think part of the problem with society is that mental health is not, um, seen like, like cancer. I mean, you, you don't say like in your case, well, what's the problem, John? Right. I don't know. My, there, maybe there's a chemical imbalance. Maybe uh, it's, it's serotonin levels aren't being produced or I'm not absorbing whatever the, whatever the problem is. But it doesn't seem like somebody can actually pinpoint the the tumor, if you will. So you see in society now and it's not across the board, but it muddies the water for for people with mental health versus people that are using mental health as an excuse for just falling out of daily life, you know, and I see it all over the time. And that makes it very difficult for somebody to say, okay, somebody like you that actually has a diagnosis and saying, okay, we got to figure out what's wrong, right? Let's try everything and let's see what's going on versus somebody that's like, oh, it's raining out today. Um, I just can't deal. I'm not coming into work, right? That's a different thing. And it's an excuse that's that's based off of people that actually have um, some kind of, you know, again, whatever whatever that diagnosis is, that anybody can now use that excuse. And I think that that, that becomes part of the problem where you can't say, oh, obviously that person has cancer and that person doesn't. 
everybody can say, I have mental health problems. I need a day off of work. I need to take the week off and I want you to pay me because it's a medical leave type of situation. Um, and to me, that's what seems to be part of the issue with society as a whole. Does that make sense? Yeah, not only does it make sense, you know, I, I go to, you think of the celebrity folks, your Anthony Bourdain's, the people who have taken their life. And those are, those to me are perfect examples of how strong the stigma is. You have people that are the last people that you would think are suffering. And the answer to them is taking lives rather than people knowing that you're suffering. You know, I mean, that's a perspective of it, but rather, rather than people knowing that you're suffering and need help, uh, it's easier to be out of that scenario. And then, and then after your, your past, uh, people can kind of, people have that correlation to, wow, this person was really struggling. You know, the fact that our society has made it so that we all have to seem so perfect all the time is just mind boggling. You know, hearing you, hearing you be real and saying my wife had to go back to work and it was such a struggle. Everybody has those struggles mm-hmm. in their house. Absolutely. You know, I mean, everybody has those, those, those things that come up that, that you hide and nobody talks about. And in, in my, my life and all this has taught me is the realer you can be, the, the more I respect you as a person, because, you know, life is not perfect and it's hard and it's difficult to raise children and it's difficult to, you know, just get by and, and, you know, you enjoy the positive times, but it's not all positive. And I think that's what the the world wants you to kind of think and feel, especially with our social media oh, absolutely. that's out there. It's, yeah. it's not, that's not well, it goes real back life. To the comment I made about the internet being a great tool, but also being the devil, you know, yeah. we have this tremendous amount of, of uh, information available to us, but we also have this tremendous amount of information that's thrown at us that we didn't ask for. You know, you log on to a Facebook to connect to your family and all you see is people at the beach. Uh, you know, it, it, it could be just a they got some sand from um, Home Depot and put it in their backyard and put a little pool and took a good picture. Um, but the, the, the visual is look at all these people out there. They're so happy. Uh, what's wrong with me? Right. Because I could be the only one that must I must obviously be the only one that feels this way. And you almost have to dig for the for the, the truth. Um, and you know, in my life it was just, okay, I don't care. None of that's going to bother me. I'm not going to let that stuff bother me, but that's not everybody can do that. Not everybody's brains allow them to just say, Hey, turn that off. Um, uh, no, for, from, from your standpoint, did, did you feel any of this as a child or did you have any, before your, your, your diagnosis and before the, the, the feelings that actually made you go seek help? You know, do you remember something that maybe uh, a trauma or anything that could have triggered um, something in your life to to start this process? The only the only other time I felt it was when I did make that move from Pittsburgh to Indianapolis, but that was more of a situational depression. You know, that was more of a this is this is awful. But I but I got to feel the power of of not having that motivation. I was 16 years old. I had no desire to get my driver's license. Where was I going to go? What was I going to do? I'm just going to sit right. at home. Right. So like you, I got to feel what some of those behaviors were like, and that was it. You know, the, the, the other unique part about me in this condition is 
I'm the extrovert in the room. I'm the, I'm the guy who's leading the charge in a fun way, right? Like where I'm the planner, I'm the let's go out, let's have fun. And, uh, people can't associate that with an illness. And so they, right. the last person in the world that people would expect is me. So then I'm fighting that stigma. I'm fighting that stereotype too. Of like, you know, John's depressed. What are you talking about? Like he's, he, he looks okay. He feels okay. And, you know, even, a month ago with uh, some friends, you look great. You, you sure everything's okay? It's like, you have no idea. Have it's no like, idea I can, I'm that. comfortable. Like I'm comfortable with who I can be on the outside with being a good father, with being a good husband and worker. But it's, it is absolutely takes every bit of my energy to do that. And, you know, when something positive is, or when I'm, when I put too much energy into something, guess what happens the next day? I'm in bed. Right. You know, yeah. it's like, it's like, it's you know, trying to stick around and be neutral is, is, is the goal, not be too high, not be too low. I'll give you a Pittsburgh example. You know, during the playoffs, during game seven of the Rangers, I was standing in front of the TV, jumping up and down, so excited, you know, back in my old Pittsburgh days. And yeah. the next day I was a mess, you know, like I got so hyped up and uh, next day you could barely, barely function. That's the challenge. You're living kind of daily life uh, moments is 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 difficult. But I I will say, you know, being being a dad and having kids and trying to normalize this, I talk about it with my kids. You know, I talk okay. about uh, I talk about mental health. I talk about you know the fact that dad's upstairs sometimes too early at night or that I'm staying in bed too long. You know, I I used to avoid telling them why, and now it's. It's something that's comfortable in our family to discuss. It's something that, you know, I have them, um, you know, from a therapy standpoint, um, it, it's something that's comfortable in our family to, you can go out and get your teeth cleaned twice a year at a dentist. You know, you can go out and do the annual physical and go to your PCP. Why is it weird for, to go seek therapy? Makes no sense. And so, you know, trying to normalize that with my kids, with my family, have them, you know, seek somebody to speak to. And, and, and not really even need it. Why not? You know, right. focus on your brain, focus on your mind, focus on your thoughts, put yourself in a healthy place rather than have society tell you not to do it. Because why would you want to tell people you're seeking therapy? Like it's, it's ridiculous. It's it makes no sense. No, it really doesn't. So do you feel like, um, like when you're in your work position, do you, is it like acting through, like, do you feel like you're playing a character sometimes or is it just sometimes you feel really good and you're going out there and then you crash or like when you have to go to work and you have to do these, uh, you, you were talking about being an extrovert. Yeah. You feel like you're, you're having to be somebody that you're not at those points to get the job done. Or is that really just it's a great question? So I will say, first off, the things that I will say that are unique for me at work is I've been very open and honest to my past company and my current company. And I will tell you that I have been blown away with the support that I have received. And it's been something that has made dealing with this much easier. I've been much more open than most are, especially in the work field. It's something that I feel like needs to be discussed. You know, it's, we, we put on an extra fake face and work that nothing's wrong or that you don't have challenges. The reality is, is, you know, it's, 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 uh, I feel like it needs to be discussed and there needs to be uh, support out there to answer your question specifically. It depends on the day. Yeah. You know, today was a hard day to get out of bed. 
was it? I was excited uh, to have the opportunity to speak with you. Yesterday wasn't as hard. You know, I get in moments where I am completely focused and I will take advantage of that focus time and bang out a works worth a week, a day's worth of work in a couple hours because I don't have those that often. Okay. You know, a, a challenge of having this condition in a work environment is sometimes just even returning a phone call if you're having a hard day is almost impossible to do. And getting up that motivation in order to do it is, uh, is something I need to fight for and, and, and make happen. So it's a great question. You know, I, I love my job. I love my colleagues. I love my people. I love the support that they've given me. I love that it allows me to provide for my family, but that doesn't mean that it's easy. Uh, and, and, and I think that's one of the things that people don't get is how can you be suffering to the level that you're doing and still do this? You know, the reality is I love what I do and it provides for my family. Um, if I, you know, my, my wife just said to me this morning, you know, we're, we're actually have three days without the kids or at the in-laws and it's the weirdest thing in the world. Like we went on a date last night and woke up and there weren't kids jumping on us. It was awesome. It's you know, I mean, so it's just surreal. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you miss it, but you're like, this is so surreal. And we were watching a show last night and this guy was at home by himself having dinner. And my wife was like, just like, oh my God, imagine how amazing that lifestyle would be just having peace and serenity. Uh-huh. And, and I, and, and to me, it would be hell. Yeah. You know, Alone being by story. myself, being by myself with nothing to do with this condition means that you're in bed thinking horrible thoughts the majority of the day. And that's just the reality of it. And that's what I told her. I said, it'd be hell for me. I, I couldn't do it. I wouldn't want to do it. And, you know, it, it's it, it, living with this and living with this as a family, you take for granted how much your life has changed because of it. And, you know, I, I do find myself hermiting in house a little more, um, spending less time with friends. Um, I have an amazing fire pit outside that we built from our San Francisco days. All you did out there was have fires with friends. It's always 50 degrees. It was amazing. Yep. So when I came here, we built this nice fire pit. I haven't had a single fire all summer. You know, it's yeah. little things like that, that you just realize how much it has depleted you. Um, you know, I have a great, a great, have you seen the TV show letter Kenny by any chance? Yeah. I've seen some episodes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm obs- like, this is a perfect example. Amazing show. Like this is dude show as you can get. Right. And then you add the hockey thing and hockey is a big part of my life and it's just incredible. But like a brand new uh, version of that came out called Shorzy, which was a spinoff, one of the best characters on that show. And I didn't watch it really? for about three months. You know, like little things like that. Like it makes no sense, but that's what this thing does to you is it really takes away, you know, pleasure and excitement and things that you're, you know, used to doing. Uh, it makes you want to not do anything. And it's a challenge. It's a huge it's challenge when it comes to work. It's a great question, but it's, it's something you, it's kind of survival mode. You have to do it. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like you don't want to add any more burden onto your family. And so, imagine not being able to work you already feel depleted you already feel miserable that you have this and the impact that it has on your family and then you can't work i mean so it'd be the worst scenario that you can have and so all of my energy goes to it um so in your case it's it doesn't and correct me if i'm wrong it doesn't seem like you have a specific or the doctors haven't said oh here's the problem john 
um, you know, if we go back to serotonin, because that's a lot of people that have depression, you know, they're, they're, whether their brain's not getting enough serotonin or I'm not sure the science behind it. Um, if they talk to you about that kind of thing, is there a specific chemical that's not working out and they just can't figure out how to maybe break that um, blood brain barrier or, you know, talk a little bit about that if, if there's something there. So the, there's a cocktail of medicines that they try. Yeah. It's a complete guessing game in a sense. Uh, I've done every cocktail that you can imagine. None of them have worked. I've done transcranial magnetic stimulation. Didn't work. Like I said, I've done the ECT. I've done the very intensive therapies. Uh, I, I, when I was going in for this clinical trial, I wrote down on the note card every single thing that I have done. And there were over 20 things that I have done to conquer this. And the reality is, is that, you know, with medication, most of the time it can be cured and helped. You know, you hear all the ads all the time. If diet and exercise don't work, yeah. you know, try this. It's hysterical because when you're doing, when you're in this condition, you, I can't exercise. You know, my wife asked me this morning to walk the dog because she had to go out to work early. It's a struggle, man. Like I'm yeah. thinking about it right now. I'm thinking about how do I get out of having to walk the dog around the block? You know, that level of, of um, energy is, is, is almost feels insurmountable. And yes, you know, psychiatry wise, they've tried everything from a medication standpoint to help me. Certain things have, you know, I've, I've, I've been on a new medicine now for the last um, about 60 days. I would say it's the 20th one that I've tried. Right. Yeah. And it's provided me some relief. You know, I, I think one of the challenges that this condition has had for me is constant thoughts of death. Yeah. Constant. And so for me, the answer for death was very simple. It was an accidental death. If I could get that, I've achieved everything that I need. And that means that my wife gets her life insurance, as you had mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. My family gets life insurance. My kids have a pat father who passed away in an accident. And I don't have to live with this anymore. And so, you know, it, your brain gets to the point of hearing about a car wreck that took someone's life and you wish that you were that person. Okay. And, you know, I'm, I was in the, my recently was taking the subway up to, um, Mount Sinai. And there's been a lot of conversations lately, or a lot of media hype about, you know, the subways not being safe in New York right now. It's, it's a little bit more like the 80s. I mean, part of that is just media being media. But, you know, my reaction to that is not, I'm scared to be in the subway. It's I hope that I could be one of those people that something bad happens to in the subway. Like that's a natural, normal thought. And so they become like that they become like breathing. And so this current medicine that I'm on has not made me think about that all the time. And okay. that's a major win. That's relief, right? And so I don't know why, but that's taken out of my, my kind of psyche and my, my mojo right now. But when you, when you tie in, going back to your work question, you know, what is it like to suffer from severe mental illness and to be able to work and to, to have to work? And you know, I would running that ad agency, it was amazing. 
great people, love the gig, love the job. You know, we'd win a big piece of business. I'd get up in front of the entire agency and we'd celebrate it. We'd have our champagne and it felt good, you know, but at the same time, you'd be driving home and you'd see, you know, it's just sounds, it's, it's hard to hear, but it's the reality of what it is. They'd see a tree and you'd be like, I could just go right into that tree and it's done. Right. That's what it's like to live with this. And being able to help, being able to be able to take something that can help me not think that way is awesome. And then and now then, the fact yeah. that I have the ability to have this surgery and get even more relief, you know, I, I have, my wife even says, are you nervous about it? Not at all. Like, I'm just, I'm ecstatic, man. Like I'm, my, my level of anguish, my level of angst about this. I'm, I'd be, I'm more concerned about getting my teeth cleaned than going in and getting two holes put in my head. Well, it's gotta um, be exhausting. Yeah. I mean, if it it's works, a, yeah, it's, it's a great exam. It's a great word. Cause I have to come up with words right now with my treatment team to measure how I'm feeling afterwards. And exhausting is a great word because it's your your mind never shuts down ever. You feel horrible all the time and you think horribly that's what it is. And it is exhausting. It's a, it's a phenomenal way to put it. Yeah. And I would imagine it's like, uh, just, a like a tornado, right? It all just swirls around. So I don't know how you sleep, but I would imagine if I'm guessing that all these thoughts, you feel horrible, you're probably not sleeping great. Um, which is awful for you. Um, diet you probably, you know, just, cooking a healthy meal is out of the question. So whatever is easy, right? A microwave dinner, which we know is awful. Um, you don't want to go outside and get sunlight. And we know sunlight is hugely important. Um, so it's just like the disease, like, okay, how we can take you down from every, every level, right? Just destroy your health. And everything. And and how do you dig yourself out? Because it's just pulling you down, pulling you down, pulling you down. And if you could get good sleep, if you could get outside, not to say those are going to fix everything. You know, if you could get exercise, for example, those would probably help. It's not going to, it's obviously not going to be a wonder drug, but I would imagine that those are the things that the, the we've been watching this show, um, Stranger Things. I don't know if yeah, you've ever totally. watched it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so my, why well, I made a mistake. Uh, my daughter watched it. Who's 11. Um, probably shouldn't have, you know, but I didn't yeah, really know uh, all... much about it, but she watched the all four seasons and so, loved it. It's so good. Right. And, uh, yeah. so my wife and I have been, my son's out of town. So it's just the three of us. So we've been sitting on the couch watching like two episodes a night for the last week or 10 days. Um, and it's like those, that, uh, shadow we're in this part where the shadow monster has that kid will. Right. He's just like every, every instance it's controlling him and dragging him deeper and deeper into that Demogorgon world or the upside down. Right. Um, and I imagine that that's, and I don't know if they wrote it about mental health, but I was thinking about this last night when we were watching it and I was thinking about, um, I had listened to a podcast where you talked about some of this before, um, and thinking, man, this is, this must be a lot what that feels like, right? You're just in this, this upside down world where, Everybody else is is over here, and you're got, you're looking for help, but part of society, you know, as to your point, is saying, "Well, you can't ask for help. Just deal with it, man. What's wrong with you, John? Just get out and get some exercise. How hard it can it be, right? You just hey, just get out. You put one foot in front of the other. 
do it a little faster. Now you're running. Take it, go for a couple of miles. All right. That would be wonderful if you could. I'm sure part of you is like, I'd love to be able to go for a run, but just it's so debilitating. And I've watched other people. And again, from an outside standpoint, it's easy enough to say, I don't know what you're going through. Of course I don't. We don't know what anybody is going through. And whether, you know, to your point about cancer, we don't want to, you know, if you, if you don't have cancer, how can you possibly imagine what's going through that person's mind? They're scared to death, right? Um, and it's the same thing that, that sounds like you're dealing with. Um, and just to be able to sit back, talk, listen, and be a support. All we can do is support, right? And I, you know, from you, you're, you're, you're all the way across the state, but I'll always be here for support. You know, people talk about friends and oh, I haven't talked to you for 30 years. It doesn't matter, right? There's friends I haven't oh. talked to for 30 years, but the support's there. But sometimes we don't know, or we, you know, we're in our own little world. We're saying, okay, well, I got to deal with all this bullshit that we all have to deal with on a daily basis. Um, and then, you know, but you get to sit down with you for an hour and a half or whatever, how long this is going to be and listen to your story and be like, man, okay, know that you have support, you know, uh, the rest of the world, who cares about them, you know, but whoever that is, your family's most important, your doctors, your colleagues, um, but they're, and this is for everybody, you have support out there. So reaching out to somebody and say, hey, I need help is the hardest thing, especially I think from a, a male standpoint, that stigma. Um, and, and, and I'm not a female, so I can't really speak on, on females, but it seems a lot more acceptable for, for, sure. for, for women to reach out and say, hey, listen, I'm having a tough time here. Um, and I think you're right that we need to break through that stigma for, from that male standpoint, because there's this People whole- think- People think that I've, I'm committing career suicide, you know, no pun intended in a sense, because I'm talking about it and I'm talking about it and I'm no, no problem, you know, being in that work environment, speaking about it. And that adds to it, right? That adds to the stigma that is out there. But if I had cancer and had to speak about it in the work world, it would not be an issue. It would be immediate empathy, right? Mm-hmm. And that comes back to it. And, and to your point about, you know, it goes back to that motivation level again and how challenging it is. My wife is a behavioral analyst. And so it's, uh, you know, scientifically proven method and how to change behaviors. They work very closely with autistic children and um, because that's the one that gets reimbursed from an insurance standpoint. But they can basically help change behavior in, in any situation. And she put together a plan for me to be able to start walking around the neighborhood. That's a goal. Of mine yeah. is just to walk, just to get out. So the first week was ten minutes, you know. The second week was uh, fifteen minutes. You know, my goal was to get to thirty minutes a, a day, you know, three times a week, not even every day, three times a week, and I couldn't do it. And so I feel like a failure again. Mm-hmm. And so the disease wins because it's constantly making you feel like you failed, and that's the reality of it. And then you add into the fact too that. People, I have so many people that care and love and support, but they don't know what to do. And Nobody and does. that's, you know, that's the reality of it is they don't know how to do it. What can I, what can, what do you need? What can I do for you? <clears throat> you know, the reality is, is just doing something, you know, rather than asking what to do to help, just doing something, you know, if it is that hug, if it is bringing over that freaking, I joke around and say, bringing over a pie to the house or grabbing the kids and taking them out and doing something, you know, that I, 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 
you know, one time I came home and my neighbor mowed my lawn. You know how amazing that was to, 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 to feel, you know, it was incredible, you know, but at the same time, you know, I have a friend right now. He's this guy, guys, they get, you know, he was a Marine. He's a uh, you know, top sales guy at his company, wonderful friend. And, you know, he sends, he's been sending me recently these little, um, you know, screenshots of attitude is everything, you know, but, but how you look at the world is blah, blah, blah. And he's trying to help, right? But he also doesn't understand at all what this is. You know, and, and it made me really try to think about this. And I'm going to read to you what I wrote to him because I'm, I'm trying to get through to him, you know, what it's really like. And, hey, let's get together. Let's go out to your cabin. Let's do this. Let's do that. I can't, I, I can't do it. I can't do that, right? And so the way that I tried to simplify it for people to understand is, you know, here's what I said to him. I said, I appreciate you reaching out lately and the pat in the back approach. It's great to have folks in my corner. Thank you. The biggest challenge of this whole damn thing is to connect, you know, is to connect that I could be a good dad, a good coach, a good worker, a good friend, but still be bitch slapped by this disease. You know, I'm a high functioning human being, but at the same time, I want to literally die. You know, the first thought and feeling I have every day is death. It's always around me. You know, the disease wants me to die and is doing everything I can to take to make me feel that way. The only reason I'm here because of the, because of, because the only reason I'm here is because of my three kids. You know, I can't have them be the kid of the dad who killed themselves. I need to find a way to live where death isn't trying to penetrate through the door at me every single second. You know, that's what 822 and the surgery means to me. And, you know, unless you hit people with the reality of it, I don't think they really get it. And, you know, it's, it's one of those moments that we had a good back and forth afterwards where, you know, I'm there for you and I'll do anything that I can. But until people say and show exactly what this is, I don't think people will get it. And that's the biggest challenge I have because, like I said, I, I am a high-functioning person. I've, I've started a support group with other high-functioning people who also suffer from this condition and trying to make it much more uh, public and much more acceptable to talk about. It's been something that's been great. You know, every month we meet, we jump online. Um, you know, sometimes it's three people, sometimes it's ten people, and it's once again a way to normalize this horrible condition. Yeah, I think you talking about it is is or because you know that there's a tremendous amount of people in business that have depression. I mean, we know that. Not comparing it to yours, I think there's a. It seems like there's a vast uh, variety. There's a variety. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and but just talking about it and saying, "Hey, this is normal, right?" My my experience is pretty normal. You know, again, I don't I, I don't have the disease, but just the thoughts, just you know, and if I were able or brave enough to have reached out to somebody because I couldn't talk to, to my family about it, you know, because I'm supposed to be the tough guy. I'm supposed to be the provider. I'm failing everything. I feel like shit. Um, so having that little bit of a background, which is not in comparison to what you're dealing with at all, but that a lot of people might be um, just getting out and talking about it is, 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 is unbelievable. Um, and well, you had to deal with, you had to deal with all that in your head. It was in your head and that's where it stayed. Right. Yeah. And, and, and,
And a lot of that is because of what I keep saying. It's society can't accept that you could feel that way and that you'd be open to talk about it. And that's, you did exactly what everybody does and that's mm-hmm. normal. It and is normal, but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. And, it's not helpful. It's not in the, you know, the, the, you are, you are the rock of that family. You're the tough guy. You got it all together, but you know, you can't, it, it society makes you not want to show um, any weakness. And that's ridiculous. It is. To me, it's just mind-boggling to me that that's what we've accepted as the normal way to to make everybody feel inferior and in that and that they are they're they're not like everybody else. Um, it's just not real. And realness is is the realness. If I had to say anything, like I go back to work and life, realness is the key to key to it all. And those are the people that I like to surround myself with. And uh, you know, if I'm judged by being as open as I am about this, piss off, man. I, I right. don't have nothing to do with you. Um, and, you know, you can keep living that route. That's all cool. But, you know, to me, if I can help any single person by talking about this and, and educating people that don't have it to show empathy, to um, know that this is not something that they asked for and that they're struggling at any variety, like at any level, like, like you said, I mean, there's multiple versions of how you feel with this, but just get rid of the judgment and, and know this is not something that people have asked for. And that, that half hug and that just, I understand. And I'm sorry you're going through this um, and getting them out of the house, you know, all that's huge, man. All of that is, is a, is an amazing victory. And you're helping and you're doing your part to to kill the stigma, which is the most ridiculous thing in the world. Yeah, it is really. And and I do, uh, I I think there hope, or I hope that there's some um, breaking down that barrier I've seen recently. And, you know, people like you that are speaking out about mental health, um, I think is extremely important. My obvious concern, which I mentioned before, is that it becomes a scapegoat. Um, and it gets diluted by people who are using it as an excuse uh, in just a day-to-day world, which doesn't help the overall cause. Um, I mean, if you're feeling down, you, people, you, we're humans, right? We have a very vast um, array of emotions, and you know, one of the one of the things I always look to to personally is a movie uh, back in the '90s called. Uh, true romance. I don't know if you ever saw it. Written by Quentin Tarantino, yeah. uh, Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette. And at the end of that movie, and I'm gonna—I don't remember exactly the the quote, but it's she's basically says, you know, sometimes it goes that way, but sometimes it goes the other way too. So when I'm having a bad day, I actually feel good, which is different than you, because I say, okay, if there's a bad day, that means a good day's coming, and if a good day's around. I get a little nervous because I know a bad day is on, on the horizon. Um, but I, it's something that I've been able to deal with because you have those bad days. Um, but I don't go in and say, hey, work. I mean, I pretty much work from home anymore, so it doesn't really matter. But you yeah. know, if I had to go to work, uh, I can't come in today because I, I feel a little bit blue. Um, the weather is not quite right. Um, where, But that dilutes your message if I were to do that. Um, and that's where I'd like to, I don't know how as society, how we, how we come to that conclusion, because it's not, you know, in that sense, it's not like the cancer, um, 
uh, example that you gave. Because somebody with cancer, you say, okay, they have cancer. We know this. Um, John, obviously, you have a you know medical diagnosis of sorts. You've gone through treatments. I haven't. So if I play that same card, it's not fair to you, right? Um, I don't know where I'm going with that, but that's something I'd like to see working. But people talking about real, real mental health issues like you are, I, I, I think it's great. And if the, for the people that that say, "Oh, John, you're weak because of this," well, like you said, beat sand, right? I don't, I don't have time for that kind of nonsense. And if you're not going to be part of the solution, then I'm not going to allow you to be part of the problem. That's a huge step. Yeah, yeah totally. So here's a here's a change in in discussion and direction. I wanted to ask you something. Yeah. So my first being a person that grew up with Adri Blyer, that was in you know elementary school. I mean, we went through it, man. We went through the races on the uh, uh, at school. I think I was faster than you. What's up? Yeah. You know, we 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 did it all right. Like from middle school, such a great thing. You know, being around you and your family was the first time that I've ever been around celebrity and fame. And I remember being at, being at the roller rinks for your parties and literally having to have like private security there in regards to how much excitement that people were to be there around, you know, your father. Yeah. Now, how, how has that been for you to live with that? That's a great it, question. Is it, you know, and, and, I, and I say that in regards to and you were very kind. You know, I reached out to you a couple of years ago when we first connected at LinkedIn and my neighbor's a high school football coach. And and I asked if there was any chance your father would speak to him. And, and your response was great. Your response was, I try to stay out of that, but here's the admin and definitely give her a call and see if you can make it happen. And it happened. Good. And, you know, being being successful person, how you are, but living in that kind of world of Rocky Blyer, you know, how, how is that, how, how is that for you? I mean, it's just in regards to just speaking about it, like what do you, yeah. what are your perspectives? So I have um, the bullshit answer and then I have the real answer. So yeah, what I tell answer. people, yeah. So yeah. when people ask that question, I usually say something uh, along the lines of, well, he's just like a dad, right? He's no different than your dad. He was just dad to me. Right. And that's and how I, that's, that, that's the same thing for me. He was just one of my friend's dads. Right. Right. And so I get that. Yes. And that is not a hundred percent true. And the part of my own insecurities, um, is because of that relationship. Um, I've gone through, uh, times in my life, mostly my whole life. And you meet somebody and they say, Oh, Adri, you know, I, I, I introduce myself as Adri Blyer. They hear the last name and they say, oh, like Rocky Blyer. Yes. Yeah, actually. Oh, what is he? A cousin or something? No, he actually he's my father. Oh, and you can physically see the change you know, in somebody's eyes, somebody's facial expression it changes. And I don't know if it's true, but my own insecurity is now you're looking at me in a different light. You're not looking at me as the person you just met. Now you're looking at me as Rocky Blyer's son which means nothing, right? But it's, but it's true. I mean, I'm Rocky Blyer's son. It doesn't make me any part of Rocky Blyer or his story. I'm my own person. So yeah. I've really had a lot of insecurities and a lot of soul searching in the last 
really probably five years about that. Um, but I've been in, 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 in sales situations, right. Where I'm talking to somebody, uh, and I'm, I've all mostly, at least in my adult life, been very transparent, very open. Um, I just try to do the best thing for people. Uh, and I've passed a, a, across a ton of money just because I, if to do what I could have done, wouldn't have been the right, the right move for that person. So could have made money, but you know, that's not how I wanted to build my business. Um, but I've been in those sales situations where I'm talking to somebody, everything's going really well. We're, we're, we hit it off and then it eventually comes up. It could be an hour into a conversation. We're laughing and all of a sudden, oh, you're Rocky Blyer, son. I see that change in, in, the, in the facial expression and I lose that, uh, that person as a client. Now, maybe I, they never were a client. There's a hundred reasons why that could have been. I didn't express my value the way I should have, whatever that could have been. But in, in, internally, I would view that as um, now that person has viewed me differently only because of my father. Uh, and we do that all the time. I mean, as a society, we do that. Um, uh, you know, a big one on the radar right now is like the Hunter Biden thing. You know, yeah. and say, okay, this is a, a guy or a kid whose father, you know, vice president, president, senator, whatever, um, and had a, his own struggles. But nobody talks about him as, hey, what's up with this, with, with, what's wrong with this guy or what's happening in his head? Um, it's always Joe Biden's son. Um, yeah. So I kind of understand that. Um, and so in those instances, yeah, I think it's been not detrimental, but I just had to come to terms with, okay, who am I in, in, in disengaging that, um, that feeling that I need to be something because of who my father is. And I, and I just had a conversation, I think I talked about this on a previous show, but, um, within the last year I was at a party and I sit down and talk to just this random lady who's sitting on a couch. We struck up a conversation and uh, she said, uh, she comes out, oh, you're Rocky Blyer's son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, great. How does it feel? How did it feel to uh, grow up in the shadow of your father? You go, okay. Um, I could just crash myself into a tree on the way home. I could go slip my wrists in the bathroom if you'd like me to now because that's something I dealt with my whole life, right? It made me feel yeah. like shit. Um, yeah. But to your point about um, mental health, nobody understands, right? What, what that would be. And again, I'm not comparing myself to the situation that you're going through, but all of us are on our own little islands sometimes. And you never know what somebody's dealing with uh, within their own life um, and how those you know, growing up, my, my father, I love my father. We're good friends. You know, we've become good friends. We've worked through a lot of things in life. Um, and he's a great guy, but I do have to be honest. How does that relationship affect me? And I, you know, I probably have ways to go, but I feel like I've come a long way. I don't know if that answered your question, but. Yeah. I mean, it's striving to be your own independent person and not feeling an immediate level of judgment because of, of who you are, like who you're associated with. And I, I would say a very, very small connection or link to me was 
I grew up with a, it's amazing how much of a, an impact relationships with your parents have on you. And mm-hmm. I was recently watching, it was 60 Minutes or a CBS morning show, one of the two. And it was Obama and Bruce Springsteen together and their relationship, like basically kind of their outlook on the world now and their friendship. And both of them spoke at great lengths about absentee fathers. And it's hard not to think about how much that had an impact on them and their success and striving to be who they are and blah, 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 blah. You know, and for me, you know, I grew up, I grew up with a father who ended up becoming president of the Neurosurgical Society of America, right? So I have this brain surgeon father who is the nicest guy in the world. But I always grew up with the, oh, where do you live? I live in Fox. Oh, you live in that nice town, Fox Chapel. What is your dad? Is he a brain surgeon? Actually, he is, right? You're constantly like trying to get out of the stereotypes, right? Or, or the immediate yeah. reactions of people. And, you know, in, in reality, like I can't live up to that. You know, I can't live up. You can't live up to being a Steelers legend. No. I can't live up to being a freaking neurosurgeon, right? But it's like, in I guess if you're looking at it from a psychology standpoint, it's it's to had it has to shape who we are in a sense, right? Oh, like I, sure. I wouldn't say that I feel I'm very comfortable with who I am as a person and what I've been able to to do. And but but it's hard not to feel inferior in a sense because I'm not the president of the Neurosurgical Society of America and you know the greatest dude in the world. And it's something that I guess always lingers there. Oh, it's absolutely. And I mean, for me, I've taken it to, even to the, the the far ends to kind of buck that whole thing. So I still live in, I don't live in Fox Chapel, I live in O'Hara, but Fox Chapel area, you know, I mean, right there. stones yep. throw from Fox Chapel is a weird, the actual. Did you take your kids to the sledding hill at the uh, elementary school? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Every winter. We still go. Um, yeah, we do. I mean, we're right there. But we say, okay, we live in O'Hara and I live in a very small house. Um, and part of that is reasons that when we bought the house, we literally had no money. Um, so we were able to get a house in the Fox Chapel area for almost nothing, but the house basically needed rebuilt. But We still live in that little house. And we've talked about moving, maybe something we could use a little bit more room, but I never wanted a big house, right? Because I grew up in this giant house, which was so very lonely. And, you know, as I have friends, they'll be like, what do you mean it was lonely? You, you, you had 50 parties with 50 people in it like every day. Yeah, well, there was probably a reason for that. You know, looking back on it now as a, as a teenager, I just thought it was fun. But, you know, having people around was nice because you could get lost in the house. Uh, and I spent a lot of time as a child alone, just playing by myself I have such vivid memories of your home. I broke yeah. on the pool table. I broke the light above the pool table once. I'll never forget did it. With the pool did stick. you? Oh, I totally remember like as yesterday. But no, it was a, it, with the pool stick. So so to add, it was literally the pool stick went up. I was like talking to you. Pool stick went up, smashed one of the lights. And I was like, oh my gosh. But I, I, to add to what you're saying, I grew up stereotypically in the world as the rich kid, right? The successful mm-hmm. father living in the good spots. And it's something that has stuck with me for the rest of my life. And I think it's why I dress down and it's why I also live in a modest home. And I, I don't want to have that. I don't want to, I don't want to have that stereotype, you know, for me and for my family. And I don't know why 
maybe it's what you said, you know, like you said, you lived in this big house and you were lonely and, you know, it's, it's a unique way to grow up. But I, I will tell you when you said I live in a small house, my house, I chose it exactly where I am. And, yeah. and I think if we look in deep into that, is it, is it because you don't want to have, you don't want to, I don't know, like, why, why is that? You know? Why, well, yeah. And then probably our children will go the other way. And I think yeah. we, you know, as humans, we all have this, um, or, or most of us probably have this situation where um, you're young, you don't have a choice, right? There's a lot of these talks out there um, about you are this way because you're a male, or you're this way because you're a female, or you're this way because of the amount of melanin in your skin, or, you know, all these general generalities, which are just ridiculous. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of people, if you grew up uh, in a, in a poor neighborhood, because, you know, part of the problem is we're, we're two quote unquote rich kids that are bitching about growing up as rich kids. Oh, totally. Yeah, I'm right? sure and, people and, are rolling yeah, people are people rolling are like, Oh, shut yeah. up. You, you exactly. have every opportunity and you, <laughs> you go, yeah, we did. But all we're saying is that, um, those experiences do shape us. Uh, and just in, in one thing that I learned is money does not breed happiness. It can breed um, some ease, right? Like not being able to pay your bills is 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 the worst feeling. Or which bill are you going to pay to keep the light? You know, got to keep the lights on, got to keep the heat on, got to keep food on the table. But maybe the phone bill doesn't get paid this month. Um, that's a terrible situation. So you know, likely, I would assume my kids growing up in a small house. Yeah, it's still a very nice neighborhood, very safe neighborhood, but probably will grow up wanting something bigger. Right. Yeah. And striving for um, the, 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 the luxuries that we don't enjoy. Um, but it's not something that I, I strive for. So I never want to um, judge somebody that says, hey, you know, I want that giant house. I don't understand it. Right. I don't understand. Uh, there's a huge house that was built. And I believe that there's like three people living in it. Right. Just down the street. What would you need all that space for? That's that's it's not that's not good for me. Doesn't mean it's yeah. not good for them. I, to me, it's like okay, fifteen people live in that house. Great, that's probably a good size house. Um, but maybe those people grew up in a different situation, and they said, you know what, I don't want to live in an apartment or whatever they might have grown up. You know, some people you, you hear these stories of people growing up in a studio apartment. Um, I can understand those people wanting to strive for the luxury can be dangerous because you get into a point of actually being able to afford something then paying for it. Uh, those are two totally different things. Yeah. Um, but teach their own and I, and, and I hope well, but I also sometimes feel like people judge me because I live in a little home and especially in that area where you go, you live, ba I basically live in the poorest part of one of the nicest communities, uh, you know, certainly in Pennsylvania, but uh, I love it. I love it. Um, I love it too. Yeah. So uh, I, I yeah, think but people are listening. Go, oh, these two rich white kids. <laughs> oh, totally. But like, we can't even talk about it without being judged, right? Yeah. And absolutely. I think that's the re the reality of it. Is I, I think it goes back to the you wanting to be viewed as a person and who mm -hmm. you are. And we immediately have a filter of the rich kid when you're growing up, right? Like you're immediately that. You're the rich kid. And then you add on another layer of you, you're Rocky Blair's son. And it's like, I just want you to know me. I want you to judge me for who I am. And right. it's, it's hard because those are the first, 
you know, conception or perceptions that people have of you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a strange thing. And I get it. I totally understand it because we do it to, to everybody. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we judge people by the way they dress. We judge people by the little things we know about them. And, and we have to, I get it. It's an innate, um, survival technique to say, okay, uh, you know, people always say, don't judge a book by its cover, which is very true. But the first thing you have to judge them by is by their cover. You have no other context to judge somebody. So, you know, they, they talk about the, the, the girl who maybe isn't dressing appropriately and you shouldn't judge her um, as, that, as that kind of person. Or the, the, the kid who's dressing like a thug, maybe is the nicest kid, maybe. But you know what? That, all I have to go on is how they're presenting themselves to begin with. I'd love to get to know that person. And that's why I love this one-on-one for an hour and a half or two hours, getting to talk to somebody and getting inside them. And, and, and getting to know them on a, on a personal basis. Now it goes out to the world or to the ether or the internet and who knows what happens there, but it's right now it's just you and I, um, and we can have an open and honest conversation. Whereas, you know, Oh, it's Rocky Blyer's son. That's all I know about him. So what am I going to judge him on? Oh, he, I can judge him off what I know about his father. I get it. Or a neuro, neurosurgeon's son. Well, why aren't you a neuro? No, you should have been a doctor. Um, well, okay, but why don't we talk to me and we can get to know each other. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's what we lose through the internet, right? Through social media is just this pick. And nobody wants to be, to have that stigma of, hey, there are problems. We all have problems. There's nothing wrong with it. It's very natural. It's very human. Um, so let's sit down and talk about the reality of who we are. Yep. Spot on. Yeah. So, um, I know you, you, you said your, uh, time's a little short today. Yeah, I have, uh, it's amazing. I got a, a big work afternoon, but you know, it's, it's meeting with good people and excited for the rest of the day. So I, I started off feeling crap. I'm feeling a little bit better, man. And you've energized good. me. And, uh, you know, I had, I had somebody once say to me when I was having a struggling day, what's your goal for the day? And it was such a great, it was such a great question because it was like, I'm going to walk around that block, you know, I'm going to take that dog for the walk. And it, and it gave me energy. So I, I, I very much thank you for, for providing me with a little boost because that's a, a huge win for the day. Oh, it's so great catching up. And I, um, you know, wish you luck with the, with the surgery coming up, of course. And I don't want to, I don't want to go another 30 years. You know, um, it won't happen. I'll, I'll, uh, I, I would say I'll, I'll take you out for a beer, but part of this condition, I stopped, I stopped drinking because it's a depressant. So yeah, I'll, uh, I'll buy you a beer and I'll have a diet coke. <laughs> diet coke. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. I love it. And I hope to see you here in Pittsburgh or sometimes I travel out to the Philly area. Maybe we can get together. Um, but let's Be not wonderful. lose touch. Um, you know, but it was great to, and thank you for being so honest and open. Um, with everything we we discussed today and uh, just let you know, like, we love you, you know, uh, again, haven't seen you for 30 years, but it doesn't matter. Um, you're still John doesn't Nelson, matter. man. It doesn't matter. Yeah, time, doesn't matter. Know, time flies anyway. For, so the next 30 years is probably going to be like two weeks feeling like, but um, it's, it's great to reconnect and, you know, please send my best to everybody in your family and, uh, Really appreciate the time and best of luck with the with the future and go Steelers. Go Steelers.
Go All Penguins! Right. Don't give up on <laughs> go, go them. Don't, don't you love how? Don't you love how we? And don't I don't know about the Pirates, but uh, I was going to say, yeah. don't you love how we just disregard the Pirates? The right. one thing that I've done every place that I've moved is I've always adopted the baseball team. <laughs> it's, the, it's the only one that I can do. <laughs> and you and, and nobody holds any uh, uh, anything against you for that. They just feel sorry for us, you know. <laughs> But, dude, we grew up, I keep telling everybody, I said, we grew up with Bonilla, Van Slyke, and Barry Bonds as our outfield. You can't beat that. So I always yeah. go back to a good place, you know? Yep. Spank, Spanky LaValle is still the best nickname of anybody in any sport. Spanky, right? <laughs> love it. <laughs> All right, man. Well, much love and respect. I really appreciate you having me on. And uh, we absolutely will keep in touch more. All right, brother. Talk to you Take soon, care. man. Have fun, everybody. Bye. Bye.